On this morning's show, we are joined by Andrew Sullivan, the founder of Asian Market Sense. Good morning, Andrew. Andrew? Hello? Yes. Oh, good morning. Hi. How are you? And we're also joined by Ben Emmons, who's Principal and Senior Portfolio Manager at New Edge Wealth. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Thank you for coming on. Um, so we had strong job numbers on Friday, um, and they were, job, they were strong across the board, I mean, including wage growth. Um, so added to the consumer confidence, which is also at decades highs, how long will this Goldilocks period in the U.S. last? And could it actually lead to further rate rises rather than the rate cuts that they're expecting this year? Um, I'll start with you, Andrew. Can't really hear Andrew. So I'll start with you then, Ben, while we sort out technical issues with Andrew. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it was an amazing report because going into it, you know, the expectation was actually fairly low, something like $80,000, uh, jobs expected with a uh, you know, slight uh, increase of the, of the unemployment rate and actually lower uh, average hourly earnings. And all of that was just completely blown away by what we saw. And I think this is one of those classic, you know, game-changing type uh, reports, right? Like, so last year we had a stronger than expected economy, a lot of talk about recession at the, at the beginning of the year, that all completely confused as we went on through the year. We finished the year kind of on, the, on a slow foot because of, of a lot of activity in the summer. But then only in December to just start to slowly accelerate again. And the markets were obviously up a lot and people pricing in rate cuts and a lot of euphoria. And I think it's having a spillover effect to the jobs market. Suddenly you're seeing the economy take off again. Lots of hiring now. There may be seasonality. There may be other specific quirks. But that's always in the case of the BLS and the way it calculates the uh, the payroll report. There's two types of surveys in there, household survey and establishment survey. But that's all a bit, I think, statistic and doom talk. If you really look into this report, this is really strong data, and it's actually across the board. And importantly, very cyclically uh, sensitive uh, sectors like um, not only construction, but private services, as an example, financial services, it's all up. So it shows to me that we're, we're, we're back to acceleration. And the most real-time indicator we have in the U.S. is this GDP Now number that's put out by the Atlanta Fed that's becoming more and more accurate of predicting where the economy is right now. And we're running at 4.2% again of real GDP. So this job support really speaks to that. So I think taking that to the Fed and rate, rate hikes and cuts, Clearly, there's no need for a rate cut. And, you know, Powell was just interviewed on CBS uh, 60 Minutes, reiterating that message. And we think that, that probably after that, it's, it's still somewhat questionable if you maintain this sort of job momentum. Next report may not be as strong as this one, but it does show a lot of momentum in the economy, an economy that grows at 4.2%. And that's really strong, right? So yields should be higher and rate cuts are not really on the table right now. So I think it will not be until the summer before the Fed can actually decide if it can actually cut rates altogether. Hopefully we've got Andrew back. So, Andrew, I'm not sure if you heard the question, but uh, to summarise it, basically we've had strong job numbers, strong wage growth in the US. We've also had consumer confidence at decades highs. So it's about the Goldilocks period. How long will it last? And um, whether actually this might prompt rate rises rather than rate cuts. So, Andrew, over to you. 
Andrew. Can you still not hear me? No, I can hear you now. We've got you back. Great. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No. I was just, ben, what Ben said, I think, is, is basically correct. And the, the Fed has indicated for some time that it expects rates to be higher for longer. It's only been the market that's been hoping for these rate cuts. Um, and I think Powell has said, you know, that he thinks we're at the peak of rates. He thinks that he can hold them here without having to go any higher and maintain this, as you say, this Goldilocks scenario. Uh, and uh, and the economy keeps going. That would be his ideal. Um, I'm not sure that they're that worried about when they cut rates. Um, you know, that's not their priority at the moment. I think they're still worried about this wage inflation coming through, uh, which is always a lagger in the in the U.S. economy because it's not as if they um, agree rates at one time of year. So that's something they will continue to monitor. And, and as they've said, they'll be data dependent, and that's going to be the key watchword. But then, what data do they actually look at? I mean, everyone keeps focusing on, say, just some headline CPI numbers, but. Um, my understanding is they're actually more focused on these wage numbers and other factors rather than just a pure headline CPI number. So if the wage growth is now running at, say, 4.5%, as it was in January, do they then start getting concerned? Or is this a situation where if we can get wage growth at 4.5%, CPI, say, at 2.2, 2.3, we're actually getting real wage growth of you know 2.5%. Two, two that's actually ideal for them, and therefore we just leave things as they are? Or do they start thinking, okay, wage growth is getting too frothy, let's start raising rates again? Um, Andrew? I, I, th- I think the fact is that a number of the, you know, the, the, the auto workers' pay, sat, pay negotiations came out with a much higher um, rate of uh, increase than people were expecting. But that, that reflects a lag that of not seeing wage rises for a couple of years. I think the Fed is hoping that as we go through this year, that that wage inflation pressure will ease because people have already seen that the fill-up from, the, from last year's wage negotiations and they won't be needing as high a wage you know, rise coming again. Um, but I agree with you. I think they're, they're going to look at most of the data. I mean, obviously, the PCE has been one of their core um, guides in the past that will continue to be so, but I think they're they're, they're looking all around. And, and Powell's always been very good at actually going out and into Main Street and into the into the manufacturing companies themselves and asking them what's really happening. So I think that's going to continue. Another thing, Ben, that Powell's actually been really good at is letting the market know what his thoughts are. And you know, as you said earlier, he's reiterated the fact that he doesn't see rate cuts in the you know early part of the year. Um, and yet the market had been trying to price it. So what was behind the fact the market was trying to price it, even though Powell has been pretty steadfast in the fact that rate cuts are not going to be cut very soon, or rates are not going to be cut very soon? Yeah, you know, for that we have to take a, a couple of steps back in time because just in all earnest, the discussion of rate cuts really started late summer. You know, Bostic from the Atlanta Fed, he's sort of a, let's say, kind of a messenger of the FOMC. He comes out, starts talking about something that is something that that they will do later on. Like, you know, like, for example, in the past, he was the first one to say the Fed should start tapering QE. This this was in early 2021. Indeed, they did it at the end of 2021. They started doing that at a faster pace, and there was a big change, right, for where we, from at that point in time, we were there. And this time, you know, there's some other instances with Boston, but this time he did the same thing. And then, Williams picked up on that. He's from the New York Fed, and he started to put a framework around it. Like, well, how can we cut rates in a strong economy? He made that analysis of comparing inflation to where the funds rate is, 
And what then happened was we had this really soft print of CPI in October, where particularly the rent component was falling. And that triggered really a lot of market expectations that, hey, Fed, you're really getting there. You're getting there maybe sooner. People started looking at three-month and six-month annualized CPI rates and start to see that, that they're getting closer closer to the Fed's target. So a lot of people making this analysis that the Fed is already there, therefore could start cutting rates. And then you had Chris Waller, who's the, on the board of the Fed. He really threw some gas on the fire in November, saying, basically alluding that they could cut rates within the next few months from that time frame, right? So three to five, six months from there. And then everything went very haywire. And then he had Powell as the last one in December, indicating that they were discussing the rate cut. And so now we're here with an economy that's actually during that time again accelerated without the Fed doing anything, right? They have not even cut rates. But all that happens is stock markets obviously rallied quite significantly on rate cut speculation and the tech story, and the job market is firming up again. So I think the rate cut is still a discussion. It's not an action. Uh, Michelle Bowman, who came out with a speech just, just uh, about before the weekend, kind of re-emphasizing again, like, yeah, at some point it may be appropriate that we could gradually lower rates, right? And if, if inflation doesn't moderate more and it reverses, we may have to keep hiking rates. And I think there's still within the FMC a lot of doubts they could actually cut rates altogether. But yet the whole discussion is taking place and the economy is being impacted by it in a good way, right? So... I think that's part of this Goldilocks story we're in, you know, strong economy, and you can talk about a rate cut, but you don't have to do it. So then we've got this, as, as I called it, as we've just been calling it, Goldilocks scenario in the US. We've got quite the opposite over here in China and um, Hong Kong. Um, and you've got American markets hitting all-time highs. You've got the Chinese markets, depending on whether it's the CSI at five-year lows or the uh, Shanghai Composite at four-year lows. Um, is that divergence going to be sustained through the year? Do we continue to look in the West and forget about what's going on in the Eastern markets? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of, you know, uh, closing of the gap? And I'll start again with you, Andrew. Then. Yeah, I think that does continue. I think well, partly because because the American market is doing so well, American investors don't need to look overseas anymore. You know, during the last five years, when interest rates in the U.S. have been zero, they've been looking worldwide to try and make yield. And, and China was an obvious uh, target for them. Um, for those that do want to go overseas, then there, there are better, safer markets. You know, Japan and India are looking much more attractive, although India is expensive. But for a lot of Americans, the, 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 the default will be to stay at home whilst the American markets are doing so well. There is no need for them to go overseas. And they are equally worried you know, by the sort of statements that Trump makes about more tariffs on China if he gets elected, um, just raising those political tensions. And that means that's going to stay with us through the year until we get the US election out of the way. Ben? Yeah, I echo that. And, and you know, the, the political environment in the United States is certainly more and more becoming even more anti-China than already are, are having currently. Right? We've never changed the tariffs that Trump put in place, as an example, we kept negotiating with, but they were supposed to expire earlier last year, and it never happened because, you know, there's a lot of technology uh, protection here now with, with the CHIPS Act that we, we've now really enacting, and we're giving U.S. companies as of uh, March specific credits for starting to, you know, basically start production of chips in the United States. So there's a lot of that sort of political focus 
and and this is this that the chips investment and semi investment here in in the US is driving all this capital in here, right? Because we have a huge base here in terms of technology and, and innovation and I think that's is part of that diversion story as end of recess. So you you know, it's very hard to stop now the the investment into US technology on top of it that we have AI, right? Which is really now by NVIDIA being basically explained as a sovereign AI. You know that it really benefits the U.S. government, <laughs> and so more investment will happen, right? So it, it's, uh, it's, I think, therefore very hard for China to catch up with U.S. markets, um, even though it's trying to continue to do so, right, by stimulating investment in its in its market and even using, well, it hasn't done yet QE, but it's sort of trying to do something in that direction with, with you know, buying potentially stocks again to the national team. Either way, I think it's going to be a divergence for, for some time. The only way that could actually truly close if China were actually start to accelerate in growth. Uh, and that, too, is, is being challenged because the pandemic has shut things off so much. It just takes them much longer to come back online. So maybe China is a story that's not for this year, but next year. But that's, that could be the case, despite if Trump is the next president, that these tariffs will be much higher against China, with even more retaliation. Nonetheless, China could still grow quite fast. Take a very different economy and stuff there. But it's like Russia, big story out there now. That Russia actually, despite everything, be really growing really fast, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. So China can, can very much achieve that again, even without the U.S. But I think it's a story for next year. All right. Um, Andrew, in one word, because we've got about 10 seconds, um, does Trump come in and do, does he actually place a 50% tariff or 60% tariff on China goods? I, I rather hope that he doesn't at, at this stage. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> all right. OK, well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have uh, for today. So I'd like to thank Andrew Sullivan, the founder of Asian Market Sense, and Ben Emmons, who's principal and senior portfolio manager at New Edge Wealth, for coming on. 